Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Hey, friends, welcome back. I hope you're ready for a walk on the wild side, because today, we're going to dig deep into the topic of seed oils. Now, you might be asking yourself, what the hell is a seed oil? Well, it's pretty much every highly processed, highly refined, industrialized cooking oil that you might be familiar with. Now, I'm talking about things like corn, canola, cottonseed, safflower, sunflower, soy, rapeseed, grapeseed. I feel like this is beginning to sound like some really strange B-side Dr. Seuss book that was never published, but funded by big agriculture. As of lately, seed oils have been getting a lot of negative attention in the press. And you might be surprised that over 25% of all of our calories come from one of these highly processed industrialized cooking oils. When you start paying attention, you quickly realize that these seed oils are literally in almost every single packaged food product in the market. And what's even more disturbing is that every time you go to a restaurant, you should assume that your food was cooked in some kind of low quality seed oil. And the reason why all this conversation around seed oils matters is because the more we remove our blinders and recognize the impact these oils have on our body, the clearer it becomes that these oils do not serve the interest of our health. Now, as a general category, these cheap and abundant cooking oils have been attributed to causing systemic inflammation, obesity, and chronic disease. Now, on today's podcast, we're going to become awakened to what exactly seed oils are, how are they created, what are their impacts on human health, and then once grounded, we're going to have a big pivot. We're going to start talking specifically about the implications of feeding our animals these low-quality, nutrient-void oils. Now, if we can come to terms and accept the reality that humans shouldn't be eating seed oils, then why is it that 99% of all grain-fed livestock feed is chocked full of them? Now, even if you don't think that seed oils are killing you, which our guest today would strongly disagree, it is safe to agree upon one fact, and that is that industrial monocrop seed oils are the biggest agriculture blunder in human history. The loss of topsoil via erosion, the ecosystem collapse of industrial farming, the implications of pesticide and herbicide use, the runoff, the excessively wasteful use of water, and the fact that these oils are void of nutrients, anything that will make your body strong. Matter of fact, makes your body freaking weak. 
Now, on today's podcast, I am joined by Anthony Adam Gustin. And I've already confirmed this with him. There is no meaning behind his name. His parents just maybe pulled some names out of a hat. Maybe they were looking at names in the Bible and they said, this is going to be a good Christian boy we produce. And like all good characters in Holy Testaments, this boy is going to speak the word of God and save mankind from the evils, the perils, the demons of seed oils. Anthony Gustin is a friend. He's also the founder of Perfect Keto and Equip Foods. He started a farm recently east of Austin, Texas called Joyfield Farm. Now, he's also the host of the Natural State podcast and a internationally recognized leader in human health, soil systems, and specifically how agriculture impacts both. So here we go. Anthony Gustin, you're up, buddy. Yeah, so seed oil, otherwise known as vegetable oil, which has been a brilliant marketing play by Big Food for the last hundred years, is a fat produced from things that aren't necessarily fatty, is how I think about it at least. So if you look at an olive oil or an avocado oil or coconut oil or tallow ghee butter, all of these sources of fat come from something you can squeeze with your hand and produce fat from. So a seed oil, I categorize it. I mean, there's a technical definition of this stuff, but I categorize it as stuff that requires large industrialization to both extract the seed from the plant, but also produce fat from that plant. And so it started with cotton seed when Chris, when um, P&G made Crisco, 1911. So we had all this extra cotton seed left over from cotton mills. And we thought, what should we do with this stuff? And some brilliant marketer thought, hey, maybe we just feed it to humans. <laughs> And so we processed it, hydrogenated it to make it stable to mimic lard. We were going in this weird transition as a society to make everything super clean. And so the main sales pitch was, hey, look, you don't have to render anything. You don't have this greasy thing that you know has all this stuff with burned fat chunks and all this other thing. It's this white, clean, comes in a package, ready to go, must be better for you, must be more convenient. And people ate it up figuratively and literally. And... It was also when basically heart attacks started, heart disease started going crazy, as well as other chronic diseases, which we can get into. But that has now expanded to, and we looked at that, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later and thought, okay, trans fats, maybe not as good as we thought, have banned it since then. Well, we've done the same thing with all these other seeds. So now if you're thinking about sunflower, safflower, soy, corn, cottonseed, canola, Rapeseed, grapeseed, rice bran, these are all seed oils. They all come from a seed or a bean. Peanut is another one. And these are fats that I don't believe humans should be eating in large amounts, given the harsh way we have to get them out using methods that we would never be able to do without massive industrial machinery. But for example, if you look at soybean oil, you get one tablespoon of soybean oil is 4,000 soybeans. Wow which is, I, I think, insane. Yeah. You would never eat that many, you, you couldn't eat that many soybeans to even get that amount of fat. And if you did, you'd have so much fiber in there that would slow down the digestion. But on top of that, when you would try to process this stuff with this big machinery, if you look at through like a flow chart of how this stuff is, how we get the fat out into a bottle for consumption, it's like 58 steps, all these harsh chemicals, all this intense machinery, all this crazy heat and processing that damages the fat so much 
It is no longer like the thing we've eaten throughout all of our human history. It's completely different. Wow. And, and what year? Okay. So when did this, when did this really become mainstream? 1911. Yeah. And then um, when we started seeing heart attacks uh, becoming more prevalent, what period, what time period was that? It followed very close after that. Heart attacks were a very rare thing. And then the only reason it became sort of in public consciousness was when Eisenhower had a heart attack. And then we had this huge war against fat because we had Ansel Keys saying like, hey, it's probably the fat. That's the issue here. Right. Saturated fat, namely. So eat this other stuff that's liquid because they gave this heuristic of imagine like a pipe gets clogged with solid fat. You see the solid fat, this liquid fat will go right through. And actually it's the exact opposite thing. So and so now 24% of our calories come from these oils, which is an insane amount. It used to be zero, zero percent, literally over a hundred, a little over a hundred years ago. Wow. And now it's 24% of our diet. Yeah. That's massive. That is so massive. And I've seen some studies. I think you've even referenced one at one point in time where it shows how land is used um, globally, global agriculture land and the spike in how much land is being managed to produce these uh, raw materials to create seed oils is exponential. It's like greater than multiple other agriculture uh, sectors combined. Right. And we look at how they're grown as well. You're not going to be able to go to a farmer's market and buy canola oil from a locally produced like artisan. They are growing the, the in most intense monocrop situations you could imagine. And then they typically need to be next to a factory. And if they're not, then they're shipped across the world to be processed, which is insane. So a lot of this stuff, actually, for example, a lot of soybean oil, most of the clear cutting in Brazil for the rainforest that people think is for cattle. It's not true. It's actually initially for soybeans. And so they cut all of the trees down. They plant soybeans, they harvest the soybeans. They then ship those soybeans after the, obviously use the combines and have the whole thing and go through the whole system there, put them on big freight ships, ship them to China to get processed, ship that typically back to Central America to get processed again and then bottled. And then that gets shipped to United States and then that gets shipped around the world. How the hell is it that this stuff is, okay, I get why it's abundant, but how is it so affordable? Like how, how can it be possible that this is uh, cheaper than just a whole pure form of cooking oil, like a, like a tallow or fat lard? Magical result of capitalism, my friend. Yeah. Plus subsidy. I mean, subsidy. how it's mostly done in the United States as well with, with corn and soy is that we have these subsidies that are left over from World War II that we've never revisited that pay farmers a guaranteed price no matter what. And so they're putting all their land in this, increases the amount to use. We can't use this for real food. We can't use the amount of corn and soy that we produce. I was back in Minnesota where I, where I grew up two weeks ago and drove all around the state seeing friends and family. And it never really hit me until I started getting into farming and everything that I am now. It is such fertile land and it is mind boggling how much corn and soy is planted in that state more corn, but just we would drive for three, four hours. And all I would see as far as my, eye could see literally cornfields, corn rows. Yeah. That's um, I've seen that too there. And that always brings up like this, um, this constant, I think you and I are living through this right now, managing land in central Texas, but it's like, you move to a fertile state where like the creator has gifted us the most nutrient dense soil to produce food, to grow food, perfect climate. 
But then you're surrounded by these monocultures and the billions of pounds of chemicals that go into that. So it's like on one hand, it'd be really romantic to step foot there and to start producing and contributing uh, to the agriculture community. But then it's like, well, where we are, it's it's harder to grow food. It's hard. There's like so many elements that you're working against, like degraded, very low fertility soil, very hot temperature, very big climate swings and shifts with large periods without rain. But um, but man, I take a lot of relief in knowing that no one's growing monocultures out here. Right. So that's that's interesting to think about. And and why why is it that these seed oils should be avoided? Like I know you mentioned some negative impacts on human health, but can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So talked about how 24% of this chemically processed weird stuff that's not the fat that we've ever consumed before is coming from these oils. The fats are damaged in a way that create oxidation and inflammation in your body. And so they broadly damage your internal systems. So that way they, they basically have a negative effect and in, in research has shown this for every single chronic disease they've been tied to mechanistically. So diabetes, cancer, heart disease, neurodegeneration, inflammation, you name it, these seed oils and the consumption of them has been linked to it. And we're getting into the point now with especially the last 10 years of stuff that's coming out showing direct costs. I think it's the number one cause of obesity. Personally, I used to think it was overconsumption of carbohydrates, but it turns out that you need your metabolism broken in the first place to not be able to handle carbohydrates. And so consumption of these fats get embedded into your tissues and then don't allow your body to do basic things like process carbohydrates, for example. So obesity, diabetes, et cetera. I think this is a key issue that we're not looking at. And one of the most important things is that when you eat this, you are embedding the fat because all of your nervous tissue, all your cells have fat that make up all the tissues. So we're basically made up of fat and protein. And this gets embedded into those tissues for up to two years after you eat it. So if I go out to a restaurant, which is where I think most people are consuming this stuff or packaged food, and I eat a meal, that fat is being stored in my body for two years. And there's nothing you can do about it. And wow. while that's happening, while it's in there for the two years, it's auto oxidizing, which is means that's providing inflammation and damaging the cells around it until you break it down. And some people are now theorizing that even in nervous tissue, this could be in your body for five to seven years. And so what that means is that the 24% that we're eating compounds. So it's not like you just eat it and it goes away. So if you eat like, for example, processed carbohydrates, sugar, you eat it, but within about two hours, your insulin comes back down, your blood sugar stabilized and you're good. It's basically like you didn't have the meal, but with this stuff, you eat it and you get two to five, seven, maybe years of those fats staying in your body. You eat the meal again, you get another layer of two, two to five, seven years and on and on and on it stacks. So some people that are super overweight, their tissues can be made up 40 plus percent of these fatty acids. Again, that what's normal in nature. So there's a fatty acid in this fat. So fat is made up of all these different building blocks, fatty acids. It's called linoleic acid specifically. That's the most damaging one of these should be around two, 3%. And people are at 20, 40 plus percent in their tissues, which is again, mind blowing how we were at that status for all of human history. And all of a sudden over the last 110, 115 years, that went from 2% 
to 40%. And you know, I, this is why I don't think it's a coincidence that that happened. We know how inflammatory it is. And also we look over the last 100, 110 years, chronic disease rates, obesity, diabetes, diabetes, heart disease, cancer especially, have gone through the roof. If you look at consumption of these oils and those chronic diseases, it's almost exactly the same line you saw with smoking and lung cancer. Wow. I would love, this is kind of dark, but I would love to see um, like uh, the cadaver of a body of someone who died from these chronic, a chronic disease that you list or maybe probably multiple chronic diseases. And that had over 24% of their calories coming from these seed oils for, you know, decades of their life. I would love to see that body out in like Yellowstone National Park and just see if um, the scavengers and the other mm. predator species would even touch it because... What I've noticed here is when we have animals die from sickness or disease, like um, those bodies kind of just sit out there. Mm. And it's like the wisdom um, or the the senses within the community of predators and the dynamics there, they they know that it's sick and they know not to touch it. So just from sound, from what I'm hearing from you, I've also seen some images that you've posted online of uh, mice or rats um, where they do cadaver dissections. And yeah, the amount of that body fat that's there is uh, alarming. And it's a visceral fat as well. That's, that is most associated with disease that also increases rapidly with this. It's polyunsaturated fatty acids or these unstable fats. And to bring back another point of fish, when it goes bad, like talking about this wisdom of, hey, I probably shouldn't eat that thing. When fish goes bad and it has that quote unquote fishy smell, that's not only in fish. That those are the omega-3 and omega-6, the polyunsaturated fatty acids and fish going rancid. And so you smell that and go, get that away from me. I don't want to consume that. The same thing happens with these oils, but when they get processed, they go through a deodorization step. And so if you didn't do that, you'd open this bottle of oil and it would smell like rotten fish. Mm, wow. So we, we've just tricked the senses That's into consuming this stuff. And we, we've basically stripped our, our own ability to have any wisdom around what we should be eating or not. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit. Um, these sound terrible for humans to consume. I think we can all get on board with that. Um, but how pervasive are these ingredients in animal feed, like livestock feed? Every animal who's fed feed currently, 99.9% of them are fed corn and soy. Again, it's more of an abundance and availability thing. And so, so we grew too much of it. We have this artificially inflated system where we have massive amounts. And so we're feeding tons to the animals. We're making tons of oil. And then we take the stuff that's left over from oil and feed it back to the animals. It's insane. So almost every single feed that you would buy for an animal is full of this stuff, but also typically the oils. So it's the cheapest way to get an energy source for an animal. If seeing is believing, then I want to see this for myself. So right now, I'm in the parking lot at my local feed store. It's about five miles from Rome Ranch. In all agricultural communities, stores like these exist. There can be local mom and pops or a national chain. And this is where people go to pick up feed to supplement their animals. Now, we're going to look through the aisles. We're going to look at the ingredient labels, and we're going to pay attention to the presence of seed oils. I honestly don't know what I'm going to find here, but let's dig into this together. Hello, feed store. So you know you're here whenever you drive up, park, and you look around. 
And every single vehicle in the parking lot is some massive pickup truck. And when you get inside, there's lots of cowboy hats, lots of starched jeans and boots. And it smells kind of like a barn. Ah, love the smell of a barn. All right, let's get to business. So I'm starting out in the cattle feed aisle. And it's kind of like a grocery store. The cereal aisle or the chip aisle, except all these bags are turbo size 50 pounders. And they're full of different feed for cattle. Okay, first up, Neutrina Nurture Beef. This is a grower finisher feed, so this is what you would give your cow to fatten up at the end of its life if you're going to take that grain finished approach. And the ingredient labels are always going to go from what's most prominent in the formula or the recipe to the least. So what you always want to look at is the first couple ingredients. And this one, I'm going to tell you right here, we got corn, cottonseed holes, Various other dried grains that aren't listed, rice bran, canola meal, soybean holes. Man, this bag is absolutely loaded with those cheap and abundant inflammatory byproducts of processing seeds. All right, after looking at about 10 other products, they all look pretty much the exact damn same. So going to bounce over to the pig feed aisle. First thing I'm going to pick up is this uh, Purina product. It's called a hog grower. There's a sweet looking pig on the front of the package and it's out in this beautiful pasture. So definitely some greenwashing. Uh, it also says simple nutrition. Let's see how simple this is, guys. All right. So this heavy ass bag. Okay. First ingredient, ground corn. Got Dehold soybean meal. Fourth ingredient is something called wheat red dog. Who the hell knows what that is? And then you have about 30 other ingredients, maybe even 40. And on there includes organic soybean oil, which is so random because it's the only organic ingredient in the entire product. But soybean oil. Okay. Uh, to be fair, let's look at the nature's best product. It's right next to this it's organic um it's almost twice the price there's three happy pigs on the front of this one and it's non-gmo so you'd expect this to be a little bit higher quality and the first ingredient is barley second ingredient is organic soybean meal and then you have some byproducts of wheat byproducts of oat byproducts of alfalfa and then again Towards the end, organic soybean holes. Okay, so this is the last ingredient label I'm going to look at because this is becoming extremely clear and extremely redundant. But this one takes the gold medal as far as disgusting, nasty, fake food that makes you weak and sick. All right, so here we go. Soy protein concentrate, sunflower oil, mm, natural flavors potato protein, methocellulose yeast extract, cultured dextrose, food starch modified, soy lehemothoglobin, salt, soy protein isolate, mmm, upset tummy, mixed trophicals, zinc, glutinate, thionine, hydrochloride, 
sodium ascorbate, niacin, hydroxide, hydrochloride, or or riboflavin, vitamin B12. Thank you for hanging in there while I attempted to read that, but that was not easy to read. I think you have to have at least a uh, 10th grade reading level to feel like you're not reading something in another language. Do you really think you have to be a nutritionist or a dietitian to recognize that this should not be fed to pigs? Well, this was actually a trick question because what I just read to you was the ingredient label of an impossible burger. But to be fair, the pig food, the cow food, the horse food, the chicken food, the turkey food, the rabbit food, even the dog food, it all looked like an impossible burger ingredient label. And that's all I need to know to decipher that this is not real food that is designed with the intention to produce strong and vibrant animals. And it's abundantly clear that I can't find a single animal feed in this entire store that doesn't have some type of byproduct of a highly processed industrial grain that was used to fabricate a seed oil. So let's just bring it across all species are being fed this, but nutritionally speaking, if we're talking about cattle, for example, who are in feedlots eating a lot of corn and soy, the same process does not happen because of their method of digestion. So they're able to take fat and they break it down. So fat is just basically a bunch of ch chains of carbon with certain hydrogen and oxygen on them. They break it down into two carbon chains and then they build it back up in their body into saturated fats and whatever fat that they need, which then, so you could feed a, a cow tons of corn and soy and all these oils, and they'll actually in, in their digestive system, turn that into that 2% that was what the animal should have. We don't need to go into the ethics of grass fed or not with cattle. I'm sure we agree. But when it comes down to nutrition comparatively from just this inflammatory fat and talking about all humans have this cumulative effect where it stores in our body tissue for years and years and years, cattle and other ruminant animals do not have that experience. Of course, I think that they should be in their natural habitat eating grasses, but if they are fed, it's not as big of a deal as if other monogastric animals, which just means single stomach like humans. So we've spared digestion. We, we can't do those magic tricks because we have bigger brains or other, other things that we've sort of evolved to have. And now when we eat, we mostly store the food we eat in the form that we get it. And this is why, you know, we could dive into micronutrition and why it's so important to get animal sources of certain nutrients because we're animals. And so we can't take the plant form of nutrients and convert it readily because we don't have the digestion to do that. A gorilla does, for example, a gorilla can do that. Humans can't. And so when we're looking at monogastric animals, pigs, chickens, turkeys, ducks, all these animals, even in pasture raised systems where people are raising them, like you said, you were doing, you guys are doing amazing. They have all this access to land. They're in their species appropriate environment. Well, huge part of the environment. If humans, for example, were out running around the woods, but they were eating <laughs> ho-hos and Twinkies and, and, and guzzling soybean oil, their health is terrible. I went to see this, I went to stay with this tribe in Africa, in Tanzania, and there was actually one obese woman, the entire tribe. And I asked the guys, like, hey, what's going on with this one? This is like 
one of these is not like the other. He's like, oh, she went to stay with these missionaries, like literally 20 miles on the road that live in the same conditions. And the one thing that changed from the diet is they have crazy access to both sugar and seed oils. Wow. And so again, the same environment breeds completely different responses just because you tweak this one thing in nutrition. And the same thing is happening, which is not, it, it, it's not debatable. It's, it's, it's literally, we have research to show that a lot of different wild pigs, things like that, a little bit different now in the US. But for example, I have the study uh, of Tokola, which is this island that is Papua New Guinea of chickens and pigs that they harvested that they eat as animals there. Their levels of linoleic acid and these fatty acids, 2%, 3%, et cetera. If you look at a pasture-raised pig now, 25%. Wow. Which again is a lot like a human. Chickens can be up to 40%. Oh, poor guys. Which is crazy. Which again, you look at this from, obviously we're eating the food. So if, even if you're looking at it from that level, like it's no different from eating the oil. If we feed them the soybean, the soybean oil, sunflower oil, which is the one I think that most people think is good because it sounds like a natural food, sunflower oil, great, I can see it, it looks beautiful. Corn, corn oil, et cetera. They get that, but then they accumulate in their body and then we eat it and then we start accumulating it as well. So it just goes down the food chain. Wow. So this is like, um, I mean, I just feel for like the the sentience of the of the livestock animals, of those monogastrics were like, giving these animals chronic diseases, mm -hmm. multiple chronic diseases. They're living lives probably, yeah, with in inflammation, with pain, not living their best life. Even though they're out on pasture, they probably feel like shit and probably don't exactly realize and can quantify the impact on that living animal because, you know, like a chicken will, you know, maybe go anywhere from six weeks to eight weeks harvest in an industrial model, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not a ton of uh, life for that animal to become symptomatic, right? More resilient in their youth, kind of same with a pig, but like, yeah, if we, if the point that I think is the most important here is that exactly how that animal is fed and the impacts that it has on its body are going to be transferred to us. Right. And so that is, um, that's something that people just don't think about, right? Cause it's easy enough to say, Hey, I want to eliminate seed oils from my diet. I don't want to eat soy. I don't want to eat corn. But if you're not asking about what's going into the animals that you're consuming, then you're kind of missing the whole picture. Yeah. And a lot of people that tried to do carnivore diet became very popular only eating animal products over the last couple of years. A lot of people did that, but ate a lot of pork and chicken and actually got a lot worse. And I think it's because they were eating this massive inflammatory diet that then was passed to the human. And there's some people who are doing some interesting stuff now. Brad Marshall, I don't know if you know who that is. He's a pig farmer up in New York, and he does some of these tests as well to figure out what's the difference between these animals if you feed them a low PUFA diet free of corn and soy and linoleic acid. And just like you said, what the animals eat them, the, the carcass, when you, when you butcher it, is completely different. The amount of fat and the type of fat look completely different. And so I think a test that some people are doing is if you make bacon and after you're done cooking it and there's all this fat, like let's say you either put it in the pan or in the oven, that should be turning white and solid very quickly when it cools. And if it's not, you're basically getting a seed oil. Wow. 
Because seed oils are not solid at room temperature. Yeah, because of the chemical composition, they stay liquid at room temperature, which is actually why they're used widely in restaurants because they can prep ingredients, sauces, things like that, that they don't, If even if they refrigerate it, it stays liquid. So if they make a Caesar salad dressing, for example, and they, they use like a high quality olive oil and they put it in the fridge, it will get hard and it will be a nightmare to use in a restaurant application. So the reason why restaurants use it, obviously, because it's cheap, but two, because we're so addicted to all the methods of consumption, consuming liquid fat now, frying our food, sauces, sauteing, it's salad dressings, et cetera, that we prize these liquid fats because we've been brainwashed forever to use them. All right, let's hit pause. I want to take a moment to express gratitude for the heart and soil of this podcast. The sponsor of this show, which is Force of Nature, You can head over to forceofnature.com and get regeneratively sourced meats shipped to your door anywhere in the continental United States. And one of my favorite things about consuming Force of Nature is that I know that I'm getting the purest form of nourishment in my diet. I'm avoiding seed oils. Force of Nature sells venison, bison, elk, beef, all within the context of hundreds of thousands of years of perfect evolution. This is the architecture of mother nature in its purest form. And I invite you to try it today. That's forceofnature.com. And now back to our show. So linoleic acid is this polyunsaturated fatty acid that's very damaging to health. Some of the saturated ones, steric acid, for example, and in other ones, these long chain saturated fatty acids, have been shown to actually be very good for many chronic diseases. So obviously it's counterintuitive to a lot of the advice we've gotten that saturated fats can kill you, but that waxy fat, especially like around the kidneys and suet and beef, especially is actually very good. It keeps you full for longer. It blunts insulin response. It helps reverse metabolic issues. It makes the mice study you were talking about. They compared steric acid, which is a long chain saturated fatty acid and that waxy fat. So it's, if you've like chewed on maybe a cacao butter, something like that, where it's like very waxy, it's like candle wax basically versus the linoleic acid and the animals that were eaten, that were eating the steric acid had essentially zero fat accumulation. And the ones, I mean, if you see this, it's like mind blowing. Like there, it looks like their internal organs were replaced 80% with fat. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Can you feed or finish a monogastric? on a diet that is absent of these toxic ingredients like corn and soy? I feel like this is a trick question. (laughs) I mean, these animals have lived all throughout history without these toxic ingredients. And this is where it just becomes a thought process of what's actually required. Animal nutrition, now that I'm starting to dig into it a lot, especially these experts, are no different than the standard model of human nutrition and all the quote unquote experts that we have there. Our dietary guidelines as humans have been designed that have made us all sick. It's, it's not working. People follow the guidelines and they're very sick. Same thing's happening with animal nutritionists where we have these weird paradigms that are just being passed on and on and on saying, Hey, we need this certain amount of this nutrient, certain amount of that nutrient, and we need this stuff or else they're not going to get to wait fast enough or whatever. So there's not a lot of data on this. This is why I am starting to do this at my farm is trying to figure out what are the input costs? 
Can you do it? What does it taste like? Obviously hitting what we do know about animal nutrition. And if we see any signs of malnutrition, obviously stopping or adjusting from there. But you have tons of wild hogs here. Are they getting fed grain? Yeah, hopefully not. Yeah, and deer. Right? What are they eating? Yeah, they're browsing. They're eating biological diets that are appropriate. Yeah, and they also have wisdom to them of what they should eat when and how much. That has been stripped from all the farm animals. So same thing happens now with, I try to, for example, with my laying hens, I supplement them with some feed, but I try not to do it until the end of the day and sometimes skip days. And maybe the laying rate goes down a little bit, but I don't want them to lose that instinct of being able to forage for bugs. Because I've seen in other farms where feed twice a day and the animal is so lazy and dependent on just getting that bulk feed that they don't express their natural behavior anymore. Same thing with the pigs. Like I feed them in the afternoon or evening because otherwise they don't root and they don't actually do what they're supposed to do. And so the same thing there is like, I think that the more we go to this, even the soy free corn free feed, it's like going to the buffet still, you know, we've lost the skill of having any sort of sense of knowing what we should eat and when, you know, if we just go to an unlimited, all you can eat buffet, eating pasta, rice, grains, all this type of stuff, bread. Of course we wouldn't know like what, what nutrients we need. I, I can't help, but just also like, you're just like, it's the interconnectedness of everything, but you're so spot on about animal health and human health and the parallels with nutrition and our own wisdom. But then also in this example that you're giving, there's, we treat land the exact same way, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're feeding it with chemistry instead of biology. But if you're pumping nitrogen into a system, you know, synthetically, then that system doesn't have to work very hard to fix atmospheric nitrogen and it won't, it becomes lazy, it becomes dormant, it becomes sick and dysfunctional. And so, you know, I, I don't know where it begins, but it certainly doesn't help that we are, um, managing our, our landscapes inappropriately as well as our animals inappropriately when it comes to diets and then feeding ourselves that same. It's like this whole system, this whole cycle has been broken at every single level. And, um, it, it's, it's shocking that we are accepting this reality, but maybe we're not. I feel like you're shedding light on something that's been in the dark for a really long time. Well, I mean, the question is, can, can we do this in a species appropriate way and still hit production numbers we need to? And I, I don't know. That's what I'm curious about. I mean, we talked about animal health, how it impacts human health, but we don't often talk about land health because it's so abstracted and so far away when you're buying feed. And so if you're doing pasture-raised systems, pork or poultry, and you go corn-free, soy-free even, or not, but you're feeding the feed, you don't see everything that needed to be mined from the earth and the health of the land that those plants were grown in. So you don't see the monocrops. You don't see that system. You're completely removed from it. The question is, can we, can we do any sort of monogastrics at scale using a non-extractive system? This is why like, I get... Uh, I don't know. I skeptical of the claim currently that we have a lot of models to do pork and chicken from like a truly regenerative capacity. Cause if you start doing the, the proper accounting of growing the grain, processing the grain, shipping the grain, milling the grain, shipping the grain to the farm, which is, you know, and then all the inputs that need to have happen to make all that happen. 
net net, what is the impact of the animal on the land? Like, is it positive or negative when you take in the whole picture? Maybe on the farm, yeah. But we're not asking the question, like, where is all this other stuff coming from? Because we're so removed from it. Yeah. And this is why I think that there's steps you can take. I don't think there's a perfect model to jump to. I think we need to start pushing the boundary and start going to more local feed mills, for example, who can source more local grains, who can grow them in more reasonable amounts than the hundreds of thousands of acres in the Midwest that are just, you know, being raped year in, year out with this corn and soy. And that's why I don't think any like fully grain based diet is great for a ruminant, but we need some sort of bridge here or else it's just, we're going to not going to be realistic to have people just say like, okay, stop doing all this production. So many farmers rely on it. People like the food. We have an entire food system that's dependent on now very increasing amounts of pork and chicken. So it's about, okay, let's, look at the system as a whole, start removing the worst offenders, which I think are corn soy. And then from there, tweaking even further. And so I think it's, can people do this from a cost-effective manner? I developed a, a little bit of a custom feed. It's cheaper than the corn and soy feed. That's and amazing. so if it produces a healthier animal, has less impact on the land and healthier humans, and which also I was telling you before the recording here, I've been able to sell those animals for much more as well. And so cheaper feed, higher margins, higher sales price. Well, hopefully that would incentivize more farmers to shift. That'd be less use for this corn and soy. But ultimately, like it's it's gonna be a long journey to figure out a system. But I think we need to start asking these questions and start exploring a little bit more. But I mean, at the end of the day, this system, your trials that you're uh experimenting through, you have a consumer calling, a consumer reaction. I mean, how how quickly did you sell those animals that you were raising differently. Yeah, I was I, like, I shot off a couple text messages and sold the animals in like five minutes. <laughs> that's, that's pretty badass. And so, I mean, yeah, that's, that's the power of the consumer. That's the power that you yield, right? You can create change and there's absolutely a calling. There's an awakening and a demand for animals like this. So I would um, maybe advise farmers and ranchers who are skeptical about changing it up, that this is a, an important point of differentiation. And that, like Anthony said, you can actually sell your products for a premium and um, disti- distinguish yourself in the marketplace very easily. Yeah. And, and on top of that too, like for people who are not farmers or ranchers who are listening to this, go to your farmers and ranchers and ask them if they can use something because, and tell them you'll pay more money because then they'll start changing their purchasing habits, et cetera. Like they, it's a, it's a very difficult way to make a living. And I've tried to, you know, I've, I have other work going on, so I don't have to only subsist on the farm income that I have, but I've imagined different scenarios of doing that. And man, it is very, very challenging to make ends meet when you're having to grow so many animals and have such a system here. So for example, one of the things that we're doing as well is we're sprouting on the grain. So we're soaking it for three days. So it sprouts. So just like, for humans, if you eat grain, one of the things that's very helpful is if you soak it and ferment it and sprout it a little bit before you consume it. It reduces all the phytic acid and makes the minerals more bioavailable and just makes it much healthier food, makes it easier to, to digest. I was thinking about how the hell would I do this if I had 500 pigs on my property? And so there's just things that break at scale. I understand like what a hard question it is to change systems for farmers when they already have such thin margins to begin with. That's why I want to like at least provide some sort of hope saying like, Hey, if you were to do this, you could make more money with maybe less work or whatever. And so trying to figure out 
what is best for the farmer? What's best for the consumer? How is there a win-win across the board here? But knowing that it's going to be very challenging to start switching some of these over, some, some of these aspects over for farmers. And so as a consumer, as a farmer, you know, someone might hear this and they're, they're going to say, well, shit, I'm, I'm not like a, a dietitian. I'm not a biologist. I don't, I don't know where to look to replace these ingredients that are so pervasive yet destructive. Right. And so what are like, what are some ideas or creative thoughts on how you can take out the uh, corn and the soy and all the seed oils from the feed? And what do you put in, in the place? This is where it's going to really depend locally on what's available. And so sometimes barley, sometimes wheat, sometimes pea, sometimes milo, sometimes sunflower. And all of these, I think, have a different gradient of what I would consider ideal given the fatty acid composition. But again, I'm not going for perfect here. I'm going for the delta between corn and soy and not, not corn and soy. These are the biggest offenders, again, on, on health of the animal and the human and the land, in my mind. And then once we can show that that makes sense, we could do that with a variety of things, depending on the region, then I think it's worth looking further at optimal sort of feed ratios. But overall, it's, it's challenging. I, I mean, I didn't know until eight months ago anything about this. So it, I don't expect people to have any sort of sense of being able to do this. But even if you go to that sort of classic nutritionist, animal livestock nutritionist, same with the, the human one, if you said, hey, I'm still going to eat grains, but just make me a diet that's ideal without corn and soy, they should be able to do it. No problem. So most feed mills that I've talked to actually have somebody that they can consult with. If not, they're pretty easy and cheap to do. And yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do as well is I, there's a lot of farmers in my area in Bastrop that want to switch to these methods, but they aren't able to go pick up the feed or they don't know where to get it, all this type of stuff. And so going in with even more farms is a goal that I want to do is like more of like a feed share program. Just like if I'm a consumer, I want to, you know, eat a lot of, you know, meat, I could do a bison share or a cow share sort of thing to reduce the price a lot. And this is another thing. If, if you and your one farm, even if you're in an area where the price is a little bit more, maybe if you bought more volume with some of the farms around you, you could bring the price down even further or have a system where the mill has a stock corn and soy free feed. A lot of times it's a, it's a pain for them to switch over all of their processes as a feed mill to be able to produce things that they're not used to producing. But more and more of them are starting to come online with this because there's consumer demand. And they have a lot of them have stock formulas that are just here's our corn and soy feed and here's our corn free soy free feed. And so that's what I would urge just like chat with the feed mill, see what they have available, chat with other farmers, try to go in together, talk to a nutritionist if you need to. But yeah, overall it's it's very confusing. And it's just one of these things that's so established as an industry that, like you said before talking to anybody about this majority of people they're going to laugh at you that's generally i mean what's this quote that whenever you're on the side of majority it's time to pause and reflect that's generally how i've felt around what i've learned around my career in health and nutrition and everything that i've done is a lot of times what we do as a society is i mean look around things aren't working from a human perspective and i think the same thing from a farming perspective this isn't working what we're doing becoming very fragile each system so maybe doing something completely different might actually be helpful all right let's take a moment to talk about this concept of fragility now i heard will harris say something the other day that just blew my fucking mind it was so powerful that 
my wife Katie actually hand wrote it and stuck it onto our refrigerator. And it goes something like this. The word essential and the word fragile should never be used as adjectives to describe a service or product. They're the antithesis of each other, right? In our food system, we recognize that there is an essential component for agriculture to feed our nation. We depend on it. Yet at the same time, this essential system is incredibly fragile. And more than ever, over the last couple of years, we are seeing the fragility of this system beginning to crack, slowly beginning to break. And these should be warning signs. And what I'm talking about is the fact that the majority of chemical fertilizer used in the United States to grow crops like corn, soy, wheat, and rice, well, that chemical product is imported from overseas, primarily countries like Russia and Ukraine. So when those chemicals stop being imported or they slow down, the biological integrity, the ability for our soil to produce plants without them, well, we've compromised that. It's significantly harder to grow food. That is fragileness. Another example is the fact that four companies control 85% of the entire beef supply in the United States. These companies are Cargill, JBS, Tyson, National Beef. And through the centralization of beef packers, we're seeing that system begin to break when pandemics hit. These plants shut down and that leaves store shelves empty and communities hungry. And my last example of a fragile food system is in the wake of these national baby food or baby formula shortages. There are empty shelves, 61% out of stock rates, four months. This was caused by the government shutting down one baby food manufacturing plant, and we painfully had to learn how the centralization and the industrialization of baby formula can create massive shortages, leaving one of our most vulnerable populations to a scary reality that their food supply could be shut off at any given point in time. So let this be a wake-up call. Essential and fragile should never be combined in the same sentence. When we're referring to our food system, let's start using essential and resilient. Because resilient people and resilient systems can overcome tremendous obstacles. I guess one, one, one other thing I just want you to provide some hope on, it's like having those direct relationships, communication contacts with your farmers and ranchers, that's huge. But man, what about going to restaurants? Like, how do you navigate that, especially with, with oils and foods, but then also like what, what the animals are fed and, and, and how can you go about that to drive change? Asking would be good, but right now there's not that I know of any people who are doing like who have commercially provided any sort of pork or chicken, any monogastric animals with low, like what I would want to see is single digit of these fatty acids, not 20, 30, 40%, which is insane. And so I would say for now, while there isn't any companies doing that, like go directly to your farmer, maybe some brands will pop up, which would be amazing. Uh, but until then eating red meat, again, even if they eat the ruminant animals, even if they eat corn and soy, even if it's the worst case scenario, you're probably getting a much better food than if you were to eat pork and chicken at a restaurant. I don't eat any pork and chicken that I don't know where it comes from anymore. Yeah. Zero. Like, but don't, I mean, I feel like 
the restaurants that we go to, it shouldn't be this way. It's very deceptive. But I even feel like sometimes I get steaks and they put oil on the fucking steak. It's yeah. You you have to ask for every single thing. Triple check. I mean, I I say at this point, my my spiel is that, hey, I have a sensitivity. Because if you say allergy, then they will freak out and not be able to give you anything because people have been conditioned via peanut and gluten allergies because they can be very serious, especially peanut, where they basically don't want to serve you anymore. So I say, I have a sensitivity. Can you please check if any of these things? And like, I just basically don't eat any sauces or dressings or anything like that because they are always with some sort of oil. Again, like I said before, it needs to be prepped with something. Yeah. And then you say, hey, this is grilled. Can you make sure like put no fat on it or just use butter? Butter. What's up? Yeah. Mo- in most places though, it's in outside the US, butter is actually margarine. Hmm. Yeah. So that's another issue. Yeah. Unless you're in a lot of Europe, you still use like good butter, but man, it's uh <laughs> people just use it interchangeably. That's sad. Very it, different. It, it's a reason to, to cook more at home as well. I mean, it's just one of these things where you never know what you're getting. And I can feel it now too, where even if I go after it and I think that I'm getting a good meal, I will still not feel great the next day. And I'm like, oh, I know what the getting blasted with the seed oils feels like to me. I get kind of like achy in my joints a little bit. My mucous membranes in my face get like a little puffy. And it goes away within like a day or two. But I still know like that I'm getting some, some sort of food. And I've I've sort of, it's, I don't think it's gluten. I don't think it's anything else. So it's, it's very, very, very difficult to go away from. Fr- fried food is the worst thing in these oils because it's the repeated heat leads to these aldehydes, which are these toxic metabolites from the fats. So beyond this, the inflammatory fat, you're getting literally toxic compounds that are formed with high heat multiple times. And so if you go into a restaurant, the best thing you do is just avoid any sort of fried food. Um, I think this is going to be something that blows people's minds, and um, but minds need to be blown because we want to connect people to the true sources of their food and the story of the land and the animals. And this is a really important one that we can't shy away from and keep in the dark. So thank you for shining a light in being the bearer of the candle. Appreciate you, you, man. Thank you, sir. So there you have it. To wrap things up nicely, as land stewards and as ranchers, it is our God-given responsibility to leave the land better than we found it. That's our role. And by doing so, we can produce the healthiest, most nutrient-dense food on the planet. We can heal soil systems, heal ecosystems, and thereby heal our own human species and heal our civilization. That is the unsurmountable, radical power of regenerative agriculture. Now, we've always had this golden rule of food in our lives, and it's guided us. It's been our moral compass, and that is to feed others as you wish to be fed. This rule has direct implications for the foods that we feed our livestock species here at the ranch. This rule applies to what we feed our community, what we feed our families. When taking this golden rule of food to heart, I recognize that I'm probably better off for the sake of my own health, not eating seed oils, not eating highly processed byproducts of chemical industrial agriculture. And if I'm not going to put that in my body, then I'm damn sure not going to put that in the bodies of the animals that I am tasked to care for. I'm damn sure not going to put that in the bodies of the earthworms and the other, the entire universe 
of soil organisms that generate life and help me grow plants. And I'm absolutely not going to put that in your body because you are an extension of me. We are in this together. We are a community and communities are resilient when people look after one another. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Anthony Adam Gustin. I didn't even really emphasize the fact that this guy is a doctor and I hope I didn't offend him. He's just, Anthony's a friend of mine and I don't call my friends. I don't, I don't refer to him as Dr. Anthony when we're hanging out and we were just hanging out today, but much respect, much love. Thank you, my kind friend. Maybe consider changing your middle name, but otherwise you're legit. Best place to stay up to date with Dr. Anthony Gustin is going to be on Instagram at Dr. Anthony Gustin. You can also connect with Anthony on his podcast, The Natural State, or on his very own website, dranthonygustin.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Where Hope Grows, and I hope you feel like we illuminated some darkness. We are shining light on areas that need light shined upon. Coming at you with 3.846 times 10 to the 26 watts of luminosity. By the way, that's how much, I guess, energy is produced by the sun at any given point in time. Don't look at the sun because that could blind you and then you won't be able to look at your phone and you won't be able to rate this podcast. Give it a five-star review. You won't be able to write a comment. You won't even be able to quickly share it with your friends. So please do all the above if you're down with the cause. And until next time, I'm sending you guys love and spreading the golden rule of food, dusting it through your ears right now. And may you feed someone as you wish to be fed, whether that be a person, whether that be a livestock species, whether that be your dog or your goldfish. So feed your goldfish a bison ribeye tonight. That's the golden rule to the next level. Now, until next time, lead with love, lead with intention, and farewell, my friends. Say bye, Scout. <laughs>